0: The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Our scripture lesson this morning is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 59. I would like to read from chapter 59... I'll read through verse 10 and then jump down to the middle of verse 15 and read 15, the latter part of verse 15 and 16 and 17. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice, no one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments and speak lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken, an adder is hatched. Their cobwebs are useless for clothing, they cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands, their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood, their thoughts are evil thoughts. Ruin and destruction mark their ways, the way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths, they have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks in them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we group along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intercede. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. Will you bow your heads together with me? Our Father, you've been faithful to us in these days that we've been together and you've spoken to our hearts and you've opened your word to us. And now we come to this very important moment and we need to hear you again. So come close, draw near to us. Take the coldness from our hearts and the stiffness from our spirits that we may be able to hear and to understand. Let your spirit quicken us, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Somewhere in the depths of every person's heart, there is the consciousness that he was made for something significant, that she was made for something significant. There's no other way to explain the self-obsession that we have. And there's no other way to explain the pride that is found in the human heart. Now, you and I often see it and it's negative to us and it's, it's something that's offensive to us. But why is it that the person, the last person in the world that you ever thought had any right to have any pride in him was loaded with it? You may be talking about yourself or you may be talking about me, but there is a pride in every human person you've ever met. Now, I think that it is because deep in every person's spirit, there is a sense that he or she is supposed to count and supposed to be significant. It is unthinkable to an ordinary person that we could be here and not be worth something. Now, my question is, can one person really make a difference in human history and make a difference in life? More can a person like you or a person like me make a difference? Now, I know that you and I say, of course, one person can make a difference if you're an Abraham or a Moses or a David or a Paul or a Martin Luther or a John Wesley or somebody like that. But can an ordinary person make a difference? There are uh, five passages of Scripture that have uh, spoken to me in the Old Testament where in every instance God said, if I could have found one person, my circumstances would have been different. And if I could have found one person, I could have done something very significant. There's an unbelievable verse in chapter 5 of Jeremiah Very simply, it says, go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, and you will remember Jerusalem was the center of the earth. For the Jew, it was the holy city. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around and consider, search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive the city. And of course... The context indicates if Jerusalem can be get forgiven, all the ends of the earth will feel the impact of that gracious act. Now, uh, one person make a difference. If you will look at uh, the 22nd chapter of Ezekiel, you will find a very similar thing. That chapter 22 is a chapter that... Uh, spells out an incredibly horrible situation among the people of God and in the city of God. It sounds remarkably like the world of which you and I are a part. The princes who rule the country are using their political positions for personal gain at the expense of the ordinary citizens. The priests who in that religious society were the major figures in Jerusalem, they said they've reached the place where they can't tell the difference between the sacred and the profane. And they call the common, the unholy, holy, and they don't recognize the sacred and the holy for what it is. They can no longer differentiate. The prophets who, speak, or who are to speak the word of God the passage says that they say God has spoken when God said he hadn't said anything and that what they said was the word of God was simply their own word and they spoke it for personal gain. And the ordinary people like you and me live looking for an opportunity to take advantage of their neighbors and prey on them parasitically. Now that's the kind of society to which Ezekiel speaks. And he says God spoke and said, I look for one person. I look for somebody who'd build up the wall, who'd stand in the gap between me and that city. Because he said, if I can't find someone who will stand between me and that city, I will have to move in judgment upon the very city of God. Now implicit within that clearly is the indication that if God could have found one person, he could have saved the city of Jerusalem. Now there are three passages in the book of Isaiah. One is in chapter 50, one is in chapter 63, and the third is in chapter 59 from which we read a few moments ago. And you heard the passage that was read. It's a passage I hate to read because it's such a horrible passage. It is a description of a city where justice has disappeared, unrighteousness prevails, the moral darkness is so great that men stumble at noonday, and the best of men and the wisest try to find their way through the moral fog looking for some wall to guide them because the darkness is that great. Somewhere in Nietzsche, there's a line about needing to light the lamps at noon. I have no question, but that he found it out of Isaiah 59 when he said the darkness was so great at noontime, we need to light the lamps so somebody can see. And God speaks and says, uh, "Is is there something wrong with me that the world's like that? There's nothing wrong with my arm that it cannot save. And there's nothing wrong with my ear that I cannot hear. And there's nothing wrong with my heart that I would not respond. And so he said, I looked for one person and I could not find that person. And because I could not find that person, I was astounded. Now, it's interesting, as we said the other day, when omniscience is surprised. But God is shocked that he cannot find one person who will make a difference in his circumstances. And that brings us to that other paradox. Isn't it interesting when omnipotence needs help? And isn't it interesting when the divine God, on whom all things depend, looks for somebody to help him, God, out of his dilemma? And so he says, I looked for a person and could not find one. Now, wouldn't you enjoy being that kind of person? Don't you down in your spirit think that if you had an opportunity, you'd sort of say, Lord, if I can go into business with you and make a difference in your world, make a difference in your redemptive purposes, what do I have to do to get there and what do I have to do to be a part of your redemptive plan? Now, when I read those passages, that was the question that came to me. I'm sure that anybody who's ever been touched by grace, anybody who has ever felt a compassion for someone else, would say, What kind of person are you looking for, God? And so with that in mind, I began to dig a little deeper in the, into the text. It's interesting this passage in Isaiah fifty nine sixteen where he says, I looked for a person, I looked for someone one translation, Some translations say, I looked for an intercessor, someone to intercede. The NIV says someone to intervene. I went back and checked out the Hebrew just to see what, that would, what, it, what it said there. And it's interesting here is the concept, and it's incredibly simple and very obvious once you, once you turn to it. The basic idea in that word, the Hebrew word, is the word mafgia, the word for an intercessor. And the word mafgia comes from a Hebrew verb which means to meet. The, 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 the basic central fact of the word is it, it is it is a meeting, an encounter, where two beings or two forces come together and meet, confront each other, come in contact with each other, come into rather intimate relationship with each other. The form which is used here is a causative form. So what you have is a word which says, I'm looking for somebody who can cause two things to meet. Now, what are the two things that he wants to meet and that he hasn't been able to get together? The two things that he wants to meet are the mercy, the grace, the long-sufferingness of God, the compassion of God, the redemptive power of God, And the sin of man, the darkness of the human heart, the blindness that's there, the obtuseness that's there, the self-will that's there, all that's wrong that's there. And God says, I just need somebody who can get me into that situation where his need and my grace meet. And God says, that's the kind of person I'm looking for. Now I thought, Wonder what you'd have to do to be that kind of person. And why is it that there are none? As I looked at that word, I thought, uh, wonder how often that verb is used in the Old Testament. And I checked in the Old Testament and found that uh, the form, the hifil, the causative form that you have in Isaiah 59 occurs only six times in the Old Testament, and three of them are in Isaiah and i noticed that two of them are in isaiah 53 and so i immediately turned to look at isaiah 53 to see what isaiah 53 how isaiah 53 used that word in Try to get the concept behind it. Somebody who can meet, cause the grace of God and the sin of man to come together so man can be redeemed and so God can be rejoice in his redemptive grace and see the purposes for his creation fulfilled the way he intended them to be fulfilled. And I found it used in verse 12 and verse 6. Verse 12, it's at the end of the chapter, the last part of the last verse. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. It very simply says, the one that Isaiah 53 is talking about, took the sins of the world, took the sins of the many upon himself, and he caused the sinners and the grace of God to meet. He bore the sin of many, and he made intercession, caused to meet the uh, sin, the transgressor, and God in his grace. But the sixth verse was the one that moved me most, most deeply. It's one that you know and know well. All we like sheep, all of us, most of us memorized it out of the King James. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But when I read it in the Hebrew, it reads a little differently from that. That's a rather free translation, because literally what it says in the Hebrew is all we like sheep have gone astray. No problem with that. We understand that. We have turned everyone to our own way. That's the essence of the problem. We turned away from him. We turned to ourselves. When we turned away from him, we turned away from his way. And we turn to our way. That is exactly what sin is. It is my it is turning to me instead of to him, and turning to my way instead of his way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Hebrew says, And the Lord has caused to meet in him the iniquities of us all. And what it says that in that uh, person in Isaiah 53 that sin of the world and that power of God met and they came together inside Jesus Christ. He took our sin into himself. And God says, I'm looking for somebody who can do that. So I thought, that's interesting, of course, we know that. The one that's the answer to the needs of the world is Christ. But the implication in all those verses is that if he could have found somebody other than Christ, he would have done it. He looked for a person and he was shocked that he couldn't find one. So as I uh, read that, let me tell you something that I saw that I had never quite seen before that sort of dramatically changed a lot of my thinking. I noticed back in Isaiah 59, 16, he speaks and he says, I looked in the darkness, I looked for a person, and I could not find one. The text says, he saw that there was no one, he was appalled that there was no intercessor. So his own arm worked salvation for him. So his own arm worked salvation for him. Now I thought, yes, the arm of the Lord is the power of God. Now, I think I shared in an earlier session the way my mind always thought about that. I used to read some Greek, Greek mythology and the figure that was imprinted in my mind was of Zeus or Jupiter standing on Mount Olympus and he had a great lightning bolt in his hand and he looked down at the world and when he saw something he didn't like, his arm would swing and that lightning bolt would strike and the power of Zeus would straighten everything out according to the way Zeus wanted it done. And so I thought of the arm of the Lord in that. And then suddenly I noticed something. You remember the first verse of Isaiah 53? Listen. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And do you know what he says the arm of the Lord is wrought like? It's not a Zeus standing on Mount Olympus hurling lightning bolts. It says he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or any majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance in the arm of the Lord that we should desire him. The arm of the Lord was despised and rejected by men. The arm of the Lord was not a man of power the way the world thinks, the arm of the Lord was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he, the arm of the Lord, took our, took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we did consider him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And God has laid on the arm of the Lord the iniquity of us all. And you know, suddenly I, something I hope you can hear what I'm saying and I hope you haven't gotten lost in everything that I'm saying. God looked down at a world that was lost in its, in its night and darkness and in its condemnation and says, if I could have found one person, I could have saved it. And he said, when I couldn't find one, my own arm brought salvation. Do you know what dawned on me? God looked down at a world that was lost and said, how under the sun can we ever save it? And God said, if I can't find one, I have no option. I will have to become one. And so the eternal father turned to the eternal son and said, salvation, if it's to come in that world, has got to be worked out down there, and it's got to be worked out in one of them. Are you willing to go down and become one of them so that that lost world can be redeemed? And do you know, suddenly it dawned on me that salvation doesn't, never comes this way. God himself couldn't save from heaven. The power of all God could not save a human heart sitting on his throne. God had to climb down off his throne, get down to our level and become one of us in order for one of us to be saved and a redemptive stream to start that could spread through society and bring a lost world back to God. And so God says, when I couldn't find one, Bethlehem became necessary. I needed a virgin and I needed her womb. And with the Holy Spirit's quickening, I needed somebody that you could touch and feel. And when you saw him, he looked just like one of you. Salvation has to be worked out at your level, God says. And you know, what he's saying is it always comes horizontally. Horizontally. You know, so you say. Well, of course, that's Christ. He's the God. He's part of the Godhead. But I want to challenge you to search through the New Testament and the references to our the atonement that saves us, and you will find that He forgave our sins. The sacrifice was made in the body of His flesh. Now, there's no question about His deity. But the redemption took place in the man Christ, in the man Jesus, who also was the eternal Son of God. Salvation goes always horizontally, never this way. And you can do all you you can wish all you please that God would zap people, but He doesn't come that way. Where God sits on His throne. The only way that anybody is saved is when somebody comes next to him and takes that other person's burden, that other person's lostness, that other person's need, takes that other person's situation into himself and comes to the place where he cares more about that other person than he does himself. And when he gets that other person in his own being and cares more about that other person than he does himself. The incredible thing is that the other person's circumstances change. And God says, that's the kind of person I'm looking for. Now you say, and this is a sort of a, a subtle thing, and you need to raise the question. You say, there's nothing redemptive in us. No, there is nothing redemptive in us. And there's not a thing that you can do in yourself that will ever be redemptive. All salvation is in God. Then you say, well, what are you saying? Let me see if I can make it clear. And I want to say that I don't think for a minute that I've exhausted and understand fully all that I'm saying. But I notice that Paul talks about our entering into the sufferings of Christ. I challenge you to go through the New Testament, the writings of Paul, and read where Paul talks about how we have the privilege of entering into the sufferings of Christ. Paul himself felt that he had entered into the sufferings of Christ. And Paul indicated that uh, when we enter into the sufferings of Christ, it makes a difference in another person's life. You remember that passage, now thanks be unto God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, leads us to a, in the cross, leads us into sacrifice, and he says that the fragrance of the gospel may be spread in every place, through us, in us. If it's going to be spread, it's going to have to be spread through us. You say, uh, then there is that passage where Paul says, death is at work in me. And because death is at work in me, life is at work in you. Read the passage in Second Corinthians 4. As you live with Paul, you will find that Paul is saying there is something that can happen inside of us that makes a difference in other people's circumstances and situations. When I got to that point, I remembered those verses that tantalized me and that I never would admit were in the scripture. I missed them for years. I missed them because I wanted to miss them. I could not face them. Those passages where Jesus said, if you get me, you get my father. And if you miss me, you miss my father. And I said, yeah, that's right. I have no problem with that. All salvation is in him. And then I found those passages where Jesus says, if they get you, they get me. And when they get me, they get my father. And if they reject you, they miss me. And when they miss me, they miss my father. And I said, wait a minute, is there an identification between Christ and us so intimate and so intense that you and I are the means through which somebody else can come to God? There is nothing saving in us. All salvation is in God and in God alone. But there is the word of Jesus. If they reject you, they miss me. And when they miss me, they miss my Father. And if they accept you, they get me. And when they get me, they get my Father. Then one day it began to dawn on me. Did you know that most of the references to intercession in the New Testament are not about human beings interceding? I don't know about you, but this is one of the shocks that came to me. If you'll go chase down the words that are most commonly translated, intercede and intercession, the verb and the noun, you know where they occur, the the most significant ones and the hard ones? It's in... Romans 8 and Hebrews 7. You will remember that it speaks about the Holy Spirit in verses twenty, or verse 26 and following. The Holy Spirit who in a world where sin has reigned and a world that is waiting for redemption. We don't know what we should pray for as we ought. So the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And then you will remember it says that Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. That is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew expression in Isaiah 59. I looked for an intercessor and I couldn't find one. Now the Spirit is interceding and now the Son is interceding. And Hebrews 7 where it speaks about he ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Now on to uh, come at that from a little different angle. When I got to that point, I remembered a conversation I had when I had first seen those passages and begun to look at them. I was talking with a friend of mine, and I said, you know, I don't know much about prayer. He was a person whom I respected and loved, and I said, uh, I'd like to know more about prayer, but first of all, will you tell me why I need to pray? Oh, he said, Kenlaw, you know you need to pray. I said, yes, but tell me why. What happens when I pray? Am I telling God something he doesn't know? He said, well, of course you're not telling him anything you don't know. Then I said, why do I need to tell him? I said, am I twisting his arm to persuade him to do something he doesn't want to do? He didn't like that. He said, you know that God is more eager to answer our prayers than we are to pray. I said, then tell me why I need to pray. And he blinked a little, and I said, but tell me something else. Why does God need to pray? And he looked back at me very quickly and said, Kenlock, God doesn't need to pray. You're the one that needs to pray. I said, well, what about Romans 8? Jesus Hebrews 7, oh, he said that's the human Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, representing us, pleading for us. I said, okay, then if that's the human Jesus pleading for us, what about the passage in Romans 8 about the Holy Spirit? Any question about his deity? And he blinked. Now you tell me why God needs to pray. I want to say all my understanding of prayer has changed because you know what I always thought prayer was? I make my list. Then I appoint my time and then I sit down and I remind him of the, my family and my friends and my church and the institution I work with and the people that I know and remind him of those and ask him to bless them. Well, God doesn't pray that way. He knows everything. He knows everything about everybody. The Father knows everything the Spirit knows. The Son knows everything the Spirit knows. The Spirit knows everything the Son knows. What are they doing praying? Now I want to tell you what I've come to believe. I want to I pinpoint it in a story. I got the story from the women in my life. I got a lot of women in my life. I got a wife and four daughters and a daughter-in-law and 11 granddaughters. We just found out that the oldest of those granddaughters is expecting and she's expecting twins. So I'm wondering if it's going to be two more women in my life. And if it is, that's wonderful. Now, there are a few males in our family. We've got one son. We've got five grandsons. And it would be very interesting if there were two great-grandsons, but we'll see about that. But the women in my life have taught me many things. One of them is they taught me about a British missionary by the name of Amy Carmichael. Periodically, quite often elsie will turn to me and she'll say, you need to read this. <laughs> and the way she says it, I know jolly well what she's thinking. And uh, so they turned to me one day and said, you need to know this and read this. So I read the story about Amy Carmichael. She was a British missionary who went to India When she got to India, there were a lot of things impressed her, but the thing that God laid on her heart the most were the temple girls. Those usually were the children who had lost a father. When the father died, the mother was burned with the father because the father would need her to serve him in the next world. And so here were these children with no father or mother. The the boys, of course, were valuable. They could work who wanted the girls? So they give them to the temples. And when they gave them to the temples, the temples used them for prostitution purposes. So you had 13-year-old girls whose bodies were racked with venereal disease. And their destiny was to be prostitutes in those temples. And Amy Carmichael watched those, and she said, somebody needs to do something. She said, what a waste of human beings. What a perversion of God's intentions for human beings. And so she began planning schemes as to how to get some of those girls out of the temples, And she got some and over a lifetime saved hundreds and hundreds of them. At one point, though, she had, uh, there was a girl that she had been working with and the temple had recaptured her. And so she thought, now the high priest, the chief priest in that temple is a religious man. There's bound to be some compassion in him. And so she went to see him. She said, uh, she sat down with him and said, now, if you'll give that little girl to us, we'll educate her. We'll teach her to read and write. We'll train her in some useful discipline so that she can make a contribution to Indian society. We will educate her so that she can give leadership in your society. And we'll get her medical help so that she can be well and strong. She said, I watched the gleam in the guy's eyes and the hard lines in his face. And she said, I knew that that girl meant money to him and to that temple. And he was not about to turn her loose. He could use her for his own ends and for the temple's ends. She said, right at that time, she had been going through an extremely difficult time on some other scores. She said the Hindu priests were not happy with what she was doing. And so the Hindu priests went to the Hindu businessman and said, you've got a, there's a woman over here, a British woman who's creating problems for us. Do something about it. So the Hindu businessman went to the British businessman and said, you got a, you got one of your fellow citizens over there that's creating problems. You need to stop her. So the British businessmen went to the British missionaries and said, one of your crowd's rocking the boat, and you better stop her from what she's doing. She's going to create problems for us. And the British missionaries, the colleagues of Amy, came to her and said, you're rocking the boat. You're going to have to quit worrying about these little girls. And Amy looked back and said, yes, but what about the girls? And they said, we know that's a noble cause, and somebody ought to do something but if you keep on doing what you're doing, you're going to make things tough for us. So she said, everywhere I turned, I had opposition. And when that priest showed his attitude to her, she said, I came back to my room, shut the door, got on my knees and said, Lord, it's not my problem. I've done everything I know to do, and it's only creating, making things worse. It's not my problem. And she said, suddenly, I saw him. He wasn't kneeling under Middle Eastern olive trees. He was kneeling under Indian tamarind trees. And as he knelt there, the tears were streaming down his face. And he looked at Amy and said, Amy, that's right. It's not your burden. It's my burden. I'm just looking for somebody who'll help me carry it. Now, when I got to that point, now my mind's queer, so you be patient with me for a minute. Do you know what came to my mind? I'm just looking for somebody who'll help me bear it. Do you know the strongest word in the Old Testament for forgiveness? It is the Hebrew word to bear. In the Old Testament, you have trouble knowing how to translate it. Whether you translate it literally bear or whether you translate it forgive. Read the 32nd Psalm. Blessed is a man whose trespasses are born whose sins are covered. Because when God bears our sins, forgiveness is possible. On that cross, he bore our transgressions. He bore our sins. And Jesus looks and says, I'm just looking for somebody who will help me bear it. Now see if you hear me. I don't understand the mystery of it, but you're going to be his bride. You are his bride. You mean to tell me a bride doesn't bear the burdens of her spouse? You know, one of the great tragedies is when you have a family where one member of the family, the marriage, the father, cares the burden of his children, but the mother doesn't. Or whether mother cares the burden of the children, but the father doesn't. But do you know the most powerful thing in the world? is when a husband and a wife bear together the needs, the concerns, the problems of their progeny. Do you know the security of a child whose parents bear equally his or her needs? Do you know what I think? The Lord Jesus says, I can't reach every person. And the only way I've got to reach them is through you. But the only way you can ever count is for you to get to the place where you care as much about him as I do. And how much do I care? I came to the place where I cared more about you than I did about myself. And if you'll just let me bring you to the place where you care more about somebody else than you do yourself, then you will become part of my redemptive program. Now, if we were in a theology class, I'd talk to you about the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'd talk to you about what it means to be a person. That a person draws his life from another and a person, if he's to be fulfilled, gives his life to somebody else. But the blessed people in the world are the people who have somebody who cares more about them than they do about themselves. Because when somebody cares more about the other person than he does himself, that other person's circumstances change and redemption is possible. Now, how do you get to that place? You're never going to get to that place. Let me tell you what the Amy Carmichael story did for me, and with this, I'm I'm closing. I pastored for many years and have been in Christian service of one kind or another all of my adult life. One of the guilts that I've carried across the years is, I'd say to myself, I wouldn't say it to too many other people, but I'd say it to myself, Kenlaw, you don't pray enough. Kenlaw, you don't know enough about prayer. So occasionally I'd get my conscience sensitive enough and the load of guilt high enough that I'd spend more time in prayer. And I'd begin to get a concern. And when I began to get a concern... You know what I'd say? I'd say, Good going, Kenlaw. You're getting to where you care. You know, I think that's pure heresy. There's not enough goodness in any of us to care about anybody else more than ourselves. And the only way we're ever going to care is to let Him put His care in our hearts. He died on the cross, and he bears us today as he intercedes. And the Spirit does it with groanings which cannot be uttered. Do you know what I think God's looking for? I think God's looking for some people who will help share his burden. I want to ask you if you've ever learned to get alone with God, with his word. And say, God, what are you caring about today? Will you let me enter into it? Will you put some of your concern in my heart? Could I help carry that burden with you? And suddenly you begin to find something inside you beginning to change. And you begin to find a load, and it's not your load, it's his. And there's something about it when you let his load become yours. That's the most fulfilling experience one human being can ever have about another. But most of us have got our list and we check them off and we've done our work. It's not what you say. It's what you carry. And when you carry, the circumstances of the other person begins to change. God's looking for somebody in your family. God's looking for somebody in your church. God's looking for somebody on your street. God's looking for somebody in your community, in your social group, in your Wherever you work, God's looking for people. He's looking for intercessors. Not people who will verbalize, but people who will bear. Are you willing to let him put some of his heart concern in you? Most of us will have to slow down if we, if we get it, and we'll have to open up. But when we do, then God will be able to do the things he wants to do in other people's hearts. Have you learned to enter into that holy of holies, where there is a spirit that groans and a Christ that bears in himself the burdens of a lost world. I suspect that's why God brought some of us to Avon Park. Should we bow our heads together for prayer? (laughs) If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at tituswomen.org.